The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anna Shemansky. Economies around the world are taking big hits as the rapid spread of the coronavirus prompts governments to warn citizens to stay at home and companies to shutter operations. That has already prompted central banks to cut rates and dust off lending support programs not used since the 2008 financial crisis. Also rearing its head from that meltdown is the question of when and how governments should bail out companies, not least airlines and hotels. Joining me from their lockdowns in London and Brooklyn are Peter Thiel Larson and Anthony Curry. Welcome, both of you. Hey, hello. Hello. So, Anthony, maybe I'll maybe I'll start with you. Why don't you walk me through, like, when we're thinking about bailouts, what really sh- what are the main things the government should be thinking? Well, the first thing it's got to do is sort out what it thinks its role is. So. And you know we may well be past this stage anyway already, and, and Peter's probably got some thoughts on this. But first of all, it's like, okay, we need to make sure we keep critical parts of the economy going. And of course, you, know, you speak to different politicians, they'll come up with what they think are critical parts of the economy. Is it automakers? Is it oil producers? Uh, is it uh, hospitals? I mean, you, you could easily say yes to all three of those. Is it cruise liners? Probably not. But when you get to the stage right now where um, just about every type of industry seems to be in crisis mode, as all of us are now stuck at home in, in so many parts of, of America and certainly parts of Britain and Europe, then you start thinking, okay, is it about just saving critical infrastructure and critical parts of the economy, or should it be broader than that? Because there are companies out there that probably should be going bust at some point soon, uh, whether their debt loads or their, their revenue is too bad, and you think retail, for example. But at this stage, we're really starting to think, how do we make sure that the maximum number of people can stay somehow employed and somehow paid? And that really does shift the conversation. As you said, you're balancing the need to keep people employed with the fear that you're going to be bailing out companies that absolutely should not be bailed out. And that could obviously have consequences down the line. However, when things are moving so quickly, does it make sense to make those distinctions between companies that should be bailed out or shouldn't? That's right. I mean, if you think back to the, the financial crisis 2008 and onwards, we were talking a lot about moral hazard in the early parts of the crisis. And then it sort of sort of fizzled out, or at least it wasn't a big part of the conversation. Now, moral hazard back then was that a lot of these companies have got us into this mess. They've done bad lending. They haven't sorted out their risk management properly. They haven't really understood what they've got on their balance sheets. Why shouldn't we just let them fail? And to an extent, we probably should have done that a lot more. Um, but now we're at the point where it's not really anyone's fault that this happened. So the moral hazard is the moral hazard here is that too many people are left unemployed, maybe not getting benefits or not getting enough benefits so that the economy uh, will find it very difficult, if not impossible, for a while to dig itself out of, itself out of the hole if this uh, lockdown we're in lasts for, what, two, three, four months. So that's where we're starting to get into the, should we be thinking about this on an industry-specific basis or should we be thinking about this on a far more broad economic basis? And Peter, I think that's where you're coming at this now, right? Yeah, and I actually think, I mean, I think there's a couple of separate questions here. I mean, I actually think um, employees keeping keeping people who are who are temporarily home or unable to work that's important. But but there's a more immediate need here as far as companies are concerned, which is that um, you want to keep companies in businesses in, in business. I mean, this essentially we I think we have to think about this as a uh, an economy wide sudden stop in 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 all kinds of activity um, and. 
uh, hopefully, um, you know, as when the lockdown ends and the, and the, and the virus recedes, um, we want everything to pick back up again. And so really the objective has to be for policymakers is to be to try and keep that economic capacity uh, as much uh, like it was before the virus came along. Um, and so when you're talking about the sort of normal process that goes on with dynamic capitalist economies, some companies start, others go out of business, um, you know, kind of there are sort of things shift and, and, and people have to shift with them or, 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 or lose, you know, or kind of, or kind of get, uh, get wiped out. That you can't really say that in this case because it's 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 affecting everything, and what you really want is that when everything comes back, you want those those businesses to be able to ramp back up again. And if they're in Chapter 11 or bankrupt or they close down or they fired all their employees, then that's going to be a slower process, and it means that the rebound when it happens uh, will be less slow. So so worrying about employees is important, but actually first and foremost, I think you have to worry about keeping businesses alive for this period of time. Now, you then met, you mentioned moral hazard. Um, and obviously, when you're talking about bailing out banks in a financial crisis, moral hazard is a real issue. I really don't see how moral hazard is an issue here. I mean, I don't think any company is running itself on the expectation that when there's a once in a hundred year global pandemic that shuts down the entire economy, that they're going to get rescued. I mean, and I think you can be fairly safe that you can fairly safe in the knowledge that once this crisis is over, um, I mean, companies may be more cautious. They may think about their supply chains. They may think about how much cash they have to keep in reserve and et cetera, which would probably be a good thing. Um, but they're probably not going to think it's OK. We can swing for the fences because next time we get a global pandemic, the government will rescue us again. Unless I mean, unless you think these things are going to become regular occurrences, which I really hope they're not, then I don't think moral hazard is something that is, that is an issue in this case. We do want companies to start thinking more about, OK, these massive buybacks we keep doing. So what was it about the U.S. airlines that are now looking for a bailout? Nine, some of them paid out 96 percent of earnings in uh, buybacks last year or over the past few years. That's starting to look untenable. Right. You want to have probably more on your balance sheet to be able to cope, which also then means that what happens to activist investors who often go for a quick hit on this kind of thing, trying to get more, more money to be paid back uh, to shareholders. But I, I uh, to an extent, you're right, Peter. But we do want companies to continue operating as, as if there won't be big problems every couple of years. But you know, clearly, this shows that some things have to change. We've got climate change affecting things, viruses and pandemics. Well, let's hope not. But you know, there, there seem to be there seems to be to me a big crisis at least once every decade that should be making companies overall think we can't just do what we want with our capital when we want, considering that every five ten years we find ourselves in a bit of a mess. That, that certainly makes sense, but there are some very big negatives with that. If you're talking about dramatically shifting how companies have to use their capital, you're going to have a much slower economy. You're going to have a much less efficient economy if companies all are going to have to hoard cash, right, for the chance that something like this happens. I think that's right. And I think I, I don't think it's realistic in a sort of, in a, in a kind of, anything other than sort of once in a hundred year sort of shutdown scenario to think companies basically need to prepare themselves for the possibility of being able to operate with almost no revenue for however many months it is. I mean, we had a, uh, we had a statement this morning from Burberry, the, the fashion retailer. They said that their like for like sales in their stores, they reckon in the last few weeks of March will be down 80%. I mean, there is no company really yeah. on earth that can operate 
for a prolonged period with that kind of a change in its business. Um, and so, um, so, so I think that's, I think, I think that's really, so, so we're quite realistically saying, you know, companies, we need to support companies and, um, uh, we need to try and get as many as we can to the point where when things bounce back in three months time, then that they at least have a reasonable chance of survival. Now, there is a problem with that, which is that you're going to have to bail out the irresponsible as well as the responsible. So, Anthony, you mentioned the airlines that have like diverted all of their free cash flow in the last few years into buying back stock rather than sort of, you know, uh, preparing themselves for the possibility they might hit a bit of turbulence. Uh, yeah, I'm afraid. It's going to happen. You're going to have to. You're going to have to basically give them money, as well as giving money to companies that have been run on a more responsible basis. Um, I don't really see how you can avoid that. I mean, first of all, just as a practical matter, you want as many companies that exist at the moment to survive at least for the next three months, and then you can sort of work things out later. Um, but secondly, also just the practicalities of trying to make sort of moral judgments in a hurry about which company should should uh, is, is has been responsible and should be allowed to continue operating and which company uh was irresponsible and, and should be allowed to fail it, it's just not realistic i think it's so so and i think in that situation if you're going to bail people out you have to bail out everybody or at least give everybody the option of a bailout um and then not worry too much about the fact that you're bailing out the irresponsible as well as the, as well as the responsible well, and, and one other thing, and uh, you know, either Anthony or Peter, you can kind of tell me what you think. It seems when we're talking about being irresponsible or responsible, I mean, part of the reason that companies were loading up on debt, part of the reason that companies were take, you know, were buying back shares so that they could have more debt in their capital structure was because interest rates have been so low. So we, we've had this decade of government policy that has encouraged a lot of behavior. Yeah that we can't then say we're going to, in this massive crisis, you know, pillory companies for doing what any reasonable company would do, given the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, to, to an extent, I think, you know, you, the, some of the buybacks got too extreme. And I think an extreme response also is, they say, Senator Elizabeth Warren, the former Democratic presidential candidate, just this week said, um, look, if, if any company takes a bailout from the government, from taxpayers, then they should permanently uh, stop doing buybacks, which is, you know, it's a wonderful idea that you could probably pitch on a campaign trail, which she's no longer on, but it is going over the top. One of her other ideas is if you can take this money, there'll be no dividends and no executive um, bonuses for, for the duration of the crisis and three years afterwards, which is much more reasonable. You can argue about whether, you know, that goes a bit too far as well. Maybe you want to have an incentive there for companies to repay the money early. Yeah, right? that's so, yeah. But but I but I think on that first part she's on the right track. But what I I do think though is that some companies have used the most the more re the most recent crisis well certainly from a corporate perspective in America of 2008 to think through what they would do. So even those airlines right before they even started talking about bailouts, um, just you know, what feels like four years ago but it was now just last week, um, they were cutting production, they were drawing down their credit lines, they were cutting buyback programs, and they were trying to find ways of making sure they could get cash on hand first. Same with um, car companies. Ford just this week said, you know, it's going to cut its dividend, which, you know, considering dividend for Ford is what has kept its shares trading at a less worse level than they should have been, and also keeps its family, uh, which has a, a big controlling, a, bit, a big stake in the voting shares there. Um, they're cutting that, they're drawing down their credit lines, and they learned from the last crisis as well. Yes, they may have done other things wrong in the past few years on an operational basis, but they're making sure they have the liquidity and also 
making sure that they can appeal to, to um, lawmakers by saying things like, look, what, guess what we're done? We're not taking salaries anymore as executives. All those kind of things in the last crisis are now being somewhat helpful now to make sure that some of the strings we might want to attach to this money, like Elizabeth Warren is talking about, are already being done um, by companies voluntarily, or at least by some of them. I, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think I think you can attach some strings to the money. I mean, I think there is a, there is a debate to be had about what form the money should take. I mean, my personal view, having talked to a few people about this, is that it basically has to be in the form of loans, um, preferably sort of government guaranteed loans with a very low interest rate, um, with some flexible repayment terms and so forth. Because actually, you want part of the point of this is that you want as many people to take the money as possible and 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 stay in business rather than shut down. Um, you can attach some, and if you attach too many strings to it, then I think people won't take the money. Um, you can attach some strings. I mean, I think um, to say you cannot buy back your stock or do mergers and acquisitions what, until you have repaid this loan seems to me to be a reasonable uh, condition that you could attach. You don't mm-hmm. want people taking the money and buying back shares. You certainly don't want people taking the money and buying their, comp- their competitors or something like that. Um, I think dividends is a bit more tricky because... Um, you know, a lot of the stock market operates on dividends. Uh, a lot of people's pensions are based on mm-hmm. companies that are listed on the stock market that depend on dividends. So if you kind of you cut off dividends across the whole economy, you create a pension problem and, uh, and, and a problem with insurance portfolios and stuff that then you then have to bail someone else out. So mm-hmm. um, that's that I think you need to be a bit careful with. I think executive compensation um, uh, again, is 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 one where you would like to sort of say you can't take a big bonus while you while you've got this money, but it's probably quite hard to police that, uh, knowing how creative these guys are. Um, so, I think you can attach some strings, but but the key point really is you have to slightly hold your nose and say um, we're just going to try and keep everybody in business for a while. Um, and, with, and 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 as, I guess if you're making loans and you're sort of structuring in such a way that you get repaid before anybody else then at least you can sort of minimize the losses to taxpayers that way. Well, thank you so much, Anthony and Peter. A pleasure, Anna. Thank you. Now let's shift from virus bailouts to virus dealmaking. For that, we hand over the mics to our colleagues in Asia with Jeff Goldfarb in the hot seat. Question we're trying to answer here in Asia this week is what do Indian credit card issuer, a Chinese cancer drug company, and Pepsi have in common? And sounds like a bad joke, but actually they are three companies that forged ahead with deals right smack in the middle of the epidemic, amazingly so. You know, you have the most recent one that you looked at, SBI Cards, this uh, credit card company, partnership between the State Bank of India and Carlyle. And they managed to get this massive IPO off on Monday. How did they manage that? Well, Jeff, it is extraordinary to see an IPO of that size, $1.4 billion, happen in India or global markets at this time. There is nothing coming down the pipe at the moment in Asia that is as large as that. So that puts that into some perspective. But at the end of the day, you know, SBI Cards has become India's only listed credit card company with a 20% market share in a country where just 4% of people flash the plastic. So anybody buying now is buying into India's long-term credit growth story, which is still a great one and will remain so. The only catch is, is that, I mean, this has really been a fantastic deal for Carlyle, less so for the people who've bought into it, at least in the short term. I think... You know, people came in 
the price for the IPO was set on March the 6th and it didn't list until just a couple of days ago. So there's been a two week break. And in that time, markets just fell off a cliff. They still got 46 times earnings for this company. I mean, even in the middle of this, people are obviously thinking long term, fast growth. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Look, it was 26 times subscribed. But I think the thing to remember is that now India is where Europe is and the US is today getting ready for a lockdown mode. We don't know it's going to happen, but we think it's coming. So that risk is definitely off now. And I think that's why we've seen the price correct. It's already trading 20% below its offer price. I think it will come back up. It's going to, it's a great long-term story, but you're nursing some heavy losses already. Right. I'm going to turn to Alec, who covered another IPO, this InnoCare Pharma, Chinese company listed in Hong Kong. And they kind of sort of turned the IPO process in itself on its head to get this deal off. It's certainly not as eye-catching sort of numbers as SBI is, but talk us through kind of how they managed to pull it off just from the logistical perspective. Yeah, so this was all done virtually. So bear in mind that the traditional Hong Kong roadshow spans Hong Kong, Singapore, San Francisco, (laughs) Boston, New York. And this one was done from... Well, effectively kind of like offices around the world on on Zoom video chat and and telephone conferencing calls. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened. Of course, like elements of this happen in every IPO where perhaps, you know, fund managers can't travel to the various kind of financial centers. And also there was a smaller deal that happened in Hong Kong, uh, also an, an IPO television producer. However, the presence of Chinese banks running that kind of suggests that, you know, kind of uh, fund manager ties in, in various parts of the world. Well, that is kind of international a deal. Exactly, yeah. So this is the first, let's say, truly kind of $100 million plus international deal on video conferencing. Is this something that, I mean, obviously this is being done out of necessity, but also in these kinds of crises, we tend to see new things happen, behavioral changes that sometimes stick. You seem to suggest that there's a possibility that this kind of wakes people up to some of the excess that happens in in IPO roadshows. I think so, yeah. So I think, you know, if you're, say, BlackRock and you're thinking about writing a $500 million check to a company whose executives you've never met, that's probably not going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. However, for smaller deals, in a lot of the cases, you know, these, these bankers meet the fund managers like a long time ago, and then they have, you know, they have like other meetings with them on the roadshow. I think what this will kind of bring to attention is the fact that a lot of those meetings in between are unnecessary and it will kind of cut a lot of the, the, the carbon footprints of the employers that these bankers are, are racking up. It's a little ESG action in the IPO exactly. space um, on the back of on the back of it. OK, but great. You know, what's re- you know what's really interesting in all of this? One of the things that you would least have expected to see is inbound Chinese M&A, given that consensus is today that the epidemic started in China. Uh, amidst all of this, we're seeing inbound Chinese M&A. What is going on, Jeff? Yeah, it's kind of amazing. We've seen this massive fall off in inbound China M&A. You know, a decade ago, there was something like 800 plus deals in a year. We're down below 400 now. But Pepsi decided like right in the middle of this to announce a deal buying a uh, sort of an online snacks distributor in China, paying $700 million, so a relatively small deal for them, but decided to go in anyway. Um, they announced the deal a couple of weeks ago. You know, so China was already like fully into the epidemic outbreak and just decided to be bold, I guess. I mean, it's, I, mean I, I do think they took some steps that sort of mitigate some of the risk in the deal. You know, first of all, they're buying uh, healthy snacks, which is a sort of a good long-term trend in China anyway. So yes, if you 
you know, who knows what's going on now. Consumer stuff may slow down, but long term, it's probably a decent, a decent play. The company, interestingly enough, only distributes online. They are mostly, they, you know, they sell on Tmall and other platforms. So they're very technologically focused. And e-commerce is one place that has actually benefited through the, through the virus. You know, people ordering more stuff online. And much like the pharma deal that, that Alec talked about, they, they finished up the due diligence the last couple months of it using video conferencing, WeChat, email. So, you know, even though they had had four months ahead of time or three or four months ahead of time to, you know, meet the executives, uh, run around, see the, see the distribution centers, all the, the regular stuff, they dispensed with the normal face-to-face meetings that you do have at the end to kind of sign the documents, get that last sense of security so that, you know, they, they managed to find a way around that as well. I mean, I think that one of the big takeaways from all of this is that interest in Asia and the Asia growth story, you know, remains intact, that hasn't changed. And maybe just one of the big outcomes from all of this is the way that deals are done will change. I mean, how much do you see that sticking, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see, we're definitely, I think, as Alec pointed out, I think we are going to see some changes happening. It's As people live with this longer and longer, as they're forced to do things remotely, as they're, you know, forced to use video conferencing, I think those, some of those things will start to um, settle into the psyche. We've seen little bursts of it before, but the technology is more robust now. You know, the behavioral change may start to seep in. I would say that there are certain parts of the process, like Jeff said, that need to be done physically. So in the case where this Pepsi deal, you know, the executives did have to kind of visit the sites. That has to happen in in a Hong Kong IPO. You know, a lot of these Banks got into trouble back in 2009. So this IPO of China Forestry was a disaster that could have been avoided had, you know, UBS and Standard Chartered actually checked to see that the company had the forests and the trees that it said. <laughs> so, you know, things like that have to be done in person. However, a lot of a lot of the process, you know, can be done over a video call. All right. Well, let's leave it there. We will continue to try and see the forest for the trees at Breaking Views. Thanks. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Peter Tal Larson, Jeff Goldfarb, Una Galani, and Alec McFarlane for coming on the show. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcast kicks. And please do share your opinions about our shows. Join us again next week for another edition.